Well, I am so delighted that you're here with us this morning. All I can say is put your seatbelts on and let's get ready to go. I'm going to start off this morning by reading my scriptures, then I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right into this message. The first scripture I want to read for you is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The second passage I want to read for you this morning has come from Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind have their sight restored, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Heavenly Father, we call upon you this morning because we need you. That's more than just a casual declaration. That's a desperate cry. We need you. We need you by the power of your Holy Spirit to move in our lives and to convict us of those things that are not right, to set straight those things in our life that are crooked. Father, we are asking you to come today. Touch our hearts. Change our minds. And let us leave this place today transformed for the honor and the glory of the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This is a true story. It would have happened at the turn of the 17th century. There was a man by the name of Castleberry. That's an interesting name. And Castleberry owned an estate in Ireland. And over the years, the estate had grown in disrepair. His family had fallen into financial devastation, and they could no longer maintain this entire huge estate, which itself was an enormous castle. So he went and lived somewhere else for several years, and he came back, and he noticed that the people of this area in Ireland had started coming and taking the stones from his castle, and they were building things in the city with it. They were putting them into the roads and building their barns and even their pigsties with stones from his castle. Now this castle was his inheritance and it was the remnants of what once was a family inheritance and great glory for the Castleberry name in Ireland. So he hired a guy to come and to build a six-foot stone fence all the way around his castle so that he could protect his estate. And then once he had hired this man, had given him the commission, he left and he was gone for three or four years. When he returned, he saw this gorgeous six-foot fence all around his estate. But when he got behind the fence, the castle was gone. So he called this man and he said, where's my castle? And the man said, castle? What castle? And he said, the castle I hired you to protect. And he said, sir, I dismantled your castle to build your fence. Now, as humorous and painful as that might be, that's an illustration of what strongholds really are. If you look up the word stronghold in either Greek or Hebrew, you will find that it means 
just that, a stronghold or a fortress. It's used throughout Scripture metaphorically to remind us that there are times that we can build up mental, emotional, spiritual strongholds in our life. Now, typically, the reason that we would build a stronghold is to protect ourselves. But oftentimes, if not every time, the very thing that we try to protect, we end up destroying it in an attempt to protect it. Our self-made strongholds are useless in every respect. Our self-made walls that we build to keep others out will eventually become the walls that make us prisoners. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, tear them down. Strongholds do not belong in the life, the imagination of the followers of Jesus. If this is true, and I think we all know that it is, I think that I can give to you at least three strongholds that the body of Christ is struggling with at this very moment. As I perceive it, those three strongholds are fear, offense, and narcissism. Because my time is less than four hours, I will only take one of these strongholds and share with you about it today. From where I sit, or at this moment stand, one of the most ominous strongholds that we are facing as the body of Christ is the stronghold of offense. I think even as a nation, we can just turn on the news and we can see offense in every headline. Statues offend people. Political parties offend people. Women are offended when they're objectified. Women are offended when they do not have the right to be objectified. We are offended at everything, every word, every visual cue. There is an opportunity for offense. I wish that I could tell you that offense has stayed outside the doors of the church, but it has not. Offense has crept into the church and has been here for hundreds of years. Offense is not new to the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, some of the strongest language that Jesus uses in the New Testament is in regard to offense. And he speaks those words against offense to both the religious crowd as well as to his disciples. These offenses, these strongholds of offense that we are facing are so prevalent in the body of Christ that we almost take them for granted and consider them to be a normal way of life when they are not. In the New Testament, the word for offense is the Greek word skandalizo. Skandalizo has come into our contemporary language as the word scandalized and scandal. But in the ancient world, the scandal or the scandalizo was a baited trap. Not just a trap, but a baited trap. Whenever I think baited trap, I always see the mouse trap with the cheese in it. An unbaited trap catches no mice. But you put cheese or peanut butter or some other food item on that trap, and it will draw the mouse to that trap, and you will be able to catch the mouse. The scandalizo or offense is a baited trap. An offense, therefore, is a trap or a situation that ensnares the people of God. Once in this trap, there's a false sense of self-protection in harboring offenses. This stronghold prevents us from seeing our own character flaws because the blame is shifted or focused onto another person. Do you know how easy it is 
to focus on other people's shortcomings, faults, and failures. Because you see, when you shine the spotlight on someone else, it allows you to live in the shadows. And for far too long, church, we've had the spotlight shined on us while those who were offended with the church lived in the shadows, never looking at their own life, never checking their own character to see if perhaps they were offensive to a holy God. Let me bring it more personal. How many times have we been offended with another person and failed to look into the mirror of our own actions and our own lives to find that we were filled with flaws and issues? Much like the man who wants to remove a speck from someone else's eye when he or she herself has a log hanging out of their own eye. I believe with everything that is within me, the Holy Spirit of God is wanting to move in a dynamic and powerful way in his church in this hour. And one of the things that will prevent us from having the momentum and the power that we so desperately need is for us to hang on to our offenses. Because you see, offense will completely stop you in your spiritual tracks. It will handicap your relationship with other people. It will hinder your pursuit of truth. And most importantly of all, offense can and will paralyze your relationship with God. Being offended is one of the deepest and perhaps most painful and yet binding traps that a Christian can fall into because it can and will eventually undermine your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how in the world do we get into this trap of offense? The process of getting pulled into that trap typically begins with an unrealistic expectation of what the Lord or someone else should do. Offense, I'm going to repeat this, offense typically begins with an unrealistic expectation or even perception of what someone else or even the Lord should do. It might come across like this. They should have been at my grandfather's funeral. They should have brought food to my family when my daughter was sick. They should have come and congratulated me when I had my child. They should have thrown a party for me when this or that happened. Somebody should have written a letter. Somebody should have done this or someone should have done that. Offense is usually not some big, outstanding, glaring deal. Typically, offense is some minor infraction that could easily be corrected if you would go to the source of the offense and talk to them about it. I know a few believers that wouldn't be willing to take ownership of what they had done if they were the source of the offense and be willing to render an apology. But can I tell you that once you are offended, it has a payoff. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel powerful for just a moment because you can hold that offense, that grudge against that person and build your wall without ever realizing that the building of that wall is coming at the very expense of that which you think you're trying to protect. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, Naaman was a commander of the army of the kings of Syria. He was a man that was great with his master, and he had high favor. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to his country, Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians, in one of their raids, carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I would that the Lord, referring to Naaman, were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him 
of his leprosy. I would love to stop there and talk about the power of an unnamed little girl that was willing to share the cure for her master, a man who had kidnapped her and been part of a people who had conquered her people. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends me word to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. The king of Samaria is trying to find offense at the request of the king of Syria. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. Notice it in the plural. There's a parade coming with Naaman, horses and chariots. And he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha came bursting forth saying, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so honored to have you in my home. That's not how it reads. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. But Naaman was angry. He was furious, and he went away saying, Behold, I thought. How many of us have walked away from the very answer that God has for us? How many times have we resisted and missed out on that healing touch and that delivering moment with Jesus because we're saying, Well, I thought. Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me, stand up and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. I've seen people walk away from church in a rage. Because someone didn't say what they thought they needed to hear. Because someone, someone did not do what they thought they needed for them to do. Because they did not get what they expected or what they thought they should get in that moment. But his servants. Thank God again for unnamed men and women who are willing to step in and speak the truth. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman came this close to missing his healing because he was offended. He expected Elisha the prophet to come out to him with great pomp and circumstance with trumpet blast and applause, with great dress and attire matching the parade that he himself had come into town with. But instead, Elisha sent a messenger and said, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. No introduction, no conclusion, just a command, go dip in this Jordan seven times. And Naaman said, what? There are cleaner rivers in Syria 
than the Jordan River. I can do better than this. I can go cleaner than this. I can get more attention than this. I can be treated as someone special somewhere else. I've had enough of this and I'm leaving. I would love to say that that is only true of Naaman, but how many people do you know, because I know none of you are sitting in this room this morning, but how many people do you know have missed out on something that God had for them because they got offended? Elisha did not meet Naaman's expectations, and he was turning in a rage to leave. But his servants reminded him, if this man had asked you to do something difficult, you would have done it. If this man had asked you to give gold and silver, you would have done it. But what he's asking of you will require humility. What he's asking of you will require that you submit yourself to what looks like foolishness and ridiculousness. But his servants convinced him, just give it a try. What do you have to lose? Church, I'm looking at you this morning and I'm asking, what do we have to lose? If we lose this world, that is nothing. But if we lose the kingdom of God, we've lost everything that matters. And he dipped in the water seven times. And when he came up, he was clean and whole before the Lord. And he went on his way. Let me give you two other people who had the opportunity to be offended, but they chose not to. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, there's a lady. We don't know her name. She's called the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman. Her daughter is vexed with a demonic spirit and throws herself to the floor and will eventually hurt herself and die if someone doesn't do something. This woman is willing to push her way into a social context where no one wants her. And she's not imagining that. They do not want her there because she is an unclean Canaanite woman. She pushes her way through these people. And can I tell you that if you're going to get to Jesus, there will always be some people that you will have to push out of your way. She pushed her way through and she got to Jesus and asked him to heal her daughter. Now you would expect Jesus to say, oh yes, my darling daughter, of course I will. But that's not what Jesus said to her. Jesus said, is it for me to take bread that was meant for the children and give it to the dogs? I've had people or heard people try to unpack that in the Greek and do some etymological gymnastics with it to try to make it say something else. But it is what it is. He called the woman a dog. But instead of being offended, this woman in desperation, and desperation will help you get over offense quickly. This woman in desperation says, it's the truth, Lord, but even dogs get crumbs from off the table. And Jesus, one of the few times in all of Scripture, Jesus says, wow. I've not seen faith like that anywhere. Because I can tell you, if you're going to be a person that refuses to be offended and walks past offense, Jesus is going to go, wow, over you too. Because it takes faith to walk without offense. He said, go home, your daughter's healed. At the turn of the century, You've got the great spiritual outpouring that's taking place through the ministry of Charles Parham in Oberlin, Oklahoma. He moves his ministry right outside of Houston. 
And all the way in Indiana, a young man by the name of William Seymour hears about the great things that are going on at Parham School. And he knows that he is supposed to go. He knows that he is supposed to be a part of this great event. William Seymour was the firstborn free child of his parents. Both of them had been born slaves and had bought their freedom years before he was born. They were proud of him, and he was a conductor for a train in Illinois. When he heard the word about what was going on at Parham School outside of Houston, he quit his job, packed up everything he had, and got to Houston. But when he got to Parham School, he found out that in Texas, much to our shame, there was a law in vogue called the Jim Crow Law. The Jim Crow Law would not allow an African man to sit in a classroom with Caucasians. William Seymour could have been offended, and to be quite honest with you, I probably would have been offended, enraged, called the press, called the television stations, and anyone who would have listened to me. And I would have given them my grievance. Look at what this man does. He says to Parham, Truth, I cannot sit in the classroom, but can I put a chair outside the window outside by the window and if you'll open the window I can hear everything out here that's going on in there and that's what the man did for almost a year at the end of his schooling he leaves goes to California and the Azusa Street Revival breaks out if that man had allowed himself to be offended had packed up and had gone home I wonder where the Pentecostal movement would be today Every man, every woman that does anything of significance for the kingdom of God will have to work their way through offenses to get there. These are not made-up offenses. These are not offenses that they concocted in their imagination. Sometimes the offense is real. But whether it's real or whether it's fabricated in our imagination, it makes no difference. There's no place in the heart and life of a kingdom man or a kingdom woman for offense. It will hold you back and keep you from being that which God has for you. More than two decades ago, a man by the name of Dennis Peacock stood on this very platform and to a packed congregation, he said these words, God will intentionally surround himself with offense, forcing us to work our way through it in order to get to him. If you've not been offended in the church, stay long enough, breathe in and out, and it will happen to you too. There are at least three roots that can make us vulnerable to being offended. You're going to love me after this. The first root is personal opinion. This is the problem of privately interpreting God's actions and written word in a way that is narrow and individualistic and therefore biased in your favor. At the heart of personal opinion usually lies this, I must be right. At all costs, I must be right. When correction comes, even if it's correction with love, when correction comes to that person, that correction itself is an occasion for offense. In Matthew chapter 15, 
Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he's telling them that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. And in chapter 15, verse 12 of Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who's not offended on my account because the, the Pharisees were offended at what Jesus had to say. Personal opinion. If you're in Texas, everyone has two. Sometimes three or more. But your opinion, your personal opinion, your personal interpretation and understanding of what God's Word means and says and how it's to be worked out in your life, it must bow its knee to the sovereign work of God Himself. For far too long, we have been like children without correction, so that when correction comes, we call it abuse. So that when correction comes, we call it even sometimes, I already said abuse, sometimes when correction comes, we interpret it and understand it as something that's negative. When correction comes, we should rejoice and celebrate because God corrects the ones he loves. Correction comes to those who have something to offer for the kingdom of God. If you've never been spiritually corrected, then you need to tighten your link and make certain that you have authorities over you and in your life that love you and care about you. And just remember that when correction comes, your first default will be to be offended. The second root of offense is personal advantage. And we ask the question, what's in it for me? For the first time in my 30 plus years of being a Christian, and I had the privilege of being in a number of churches throughout the year, but for the first time in my life as a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, I have seen a phenomenon that I've never seen before, and it's this. When I first accepted Christ, and there was an altar call, and ministry was taking place, and the Holy Spirit was moving, and ministering, and healing, and salvation, and deliverance, and baptizing people in the Holy Spirit, and pulling down strongholds in their life, nobody moved. If that wasn't your particular portion, you stayed where you were and you interceded and you prayed. This is the first time in my life I have seen people get up and leave at an altar call. Because if it's not about you, you want nothing to do with it. If it's not specifically called out for you and your situation, you see no need to stay. How many people have not gone to church because they ask themselves the question, what's in it for me? Can I tell you church is not about you? Worship's not about you either. Because we're not worshiping you, we're worshiping him. And we're not coming together for you. We're coming together to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus because he's the reason and he is the center of it all. Personal opinion, personal advantage. In Matthew 16, Jesus makes his great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Chapter 16 leads us to believe that not many minutes after that, Jesus begins to talk about the crucifixion. He begins to talk about his suffering. He begins to talk about the pain and the things that he's going to have to go through. This is not good for advertisement. This is not good for drawing the crowds and keeping the money coming in. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. 
Because at the heart of Peter's rebuke is there's nothing in that kind of talk for me. I'm the one that the church is going to be built on, my confession. So Jesus, don't talk like that. I've got an image to keep here. I've got a reputation. Don't talk like that. And Jesus said, I rebuke you. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense. It was because of his personal advantage. What's in it for me? Church, we're a part of a what's in it for me culture. It's not just a generational thing. This is 90-year-old and 9-year-old and everything in between. We are a part of a what's in it for me culture. If it doesn't do something for me, I want no part of it. And if you keep making me go or you keep telling me that's where I need to be and there's nothing in it for me, I will get offended and then I'll create a reason to leave. Oh, you guys got real quiet then. (laughs) Personal opinion, personal advantage. If you like the first two, you're going to really like this one. Personal convenience. There was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. I've kept the law ever since I was a child. I give to the poor and I do this and I do that. And Jesus said, give it all away and follow me. And the young man left sad because he had a lot. And the Marty translation is that it just wouldn't be convenient for me to give away everything. I've got to keep something. It's not comfortable. Can I tell you, if your Christianity is making you comfortable and if it's convenient, something's wrong. If you're doing it right, if you're following Jesus with everything that's within you, it will not be convenient and it certainly will not be comfortable. I have not been comfortable since 1980 when I said yes to Jesus. So how do you know if you are offended or if you're being offended. Here are the two major symptoms. Major symptom number one is disillusionment. This is based on an unrealistic image or idea about what God is and what we should expect for him, or perhaps an unrealistic expectation of what other Christians should be and do. Disillusionment comes when our personal opinion our personal advantage, and our personal comfort or convenience has been challenged by reality. I'm going to repeat that again. Disillusionment most often comes when our personal opinion, our personal advantage, and our personal comfort or convenience have been challenged by reality. And right on the heels of that symptom is symptom number two. Then we disengage. This is a natural response of distancing ourselves from that offending person or offending group. In the case of Naaman, it's Elisha. And Naaman wants to turn around and go home because he's he's offended. I know that when people leave any church, not just this one, but when they leave any church, there's a list of reasons. There's the presenting reason, which is the acceptable reason that you give to the leadership. And then there's the real reason. And somewhere underneath, the real reason is usually buried in offense. What are the reasons for being offended? Well, in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, misconduct of leaders. 
Because what the press and the media do, a Christian man or woman falls or there's a gray area in their life, the media is all over them like a vulture. They take a picture of it, they magnify it, and they run it on the news until it's no longer interesting. So our mistakes and our failures are no longer private, but they now become public, and the misconduct of a leader can lead to personal offense. Presumptuous prophecies. Perhaps someone in, a, in, a, in zeal and in desire to be good to you or say something nice to you, maybe they told you what they thought you wanted to hear. By this time next year, you'll be married. Ring by spring or your money back. Maybe they said something to you like, you'll have a baby by this time next year. And so the year comes, and the year comes, and there's no ring, and there's no baby, and there's no healing, and there's no big bank account, and there's no international ministry. And so you get offended because of what that person said. A teaching moment. With every prophetic word, there's the one speaking, and there's the one hearing. You have, as a hearer, the responsibility to take every prophetic word spoken over your life to the Lord and ask Him if it's right or not. The third reason for offense, promised or claimed healings that never come to pass. I just knew if I said the right words and read the right scriptures and sang the right songs, if I just kept doing it, that I would be healed, but I'm not healed. And now I'm offended with God because he didn't heal me. Fourth, do you guys know you can pick up someone else's offenses? See, this is, this is my problem. You can offend me, and typically I will get over it, but if you offend someone I love, if you offend someone that I consider to be one of my kids, I will go mama bear on you. And I will pick up their offense. We can pick up other people's offenses. They'll get over it and we'll be stuck with it. The fifth reason for offense is persecution. When someone teases us or bullies us or marginalizes us because of our faith, it is easy for us to get offended at God because he lets them do it and seemingly get away with it. So, all right, those are the symptoms, and those are some of the reasons. How do you get over offense? How do you prevent offense from happening in your life? At the top of my list, you prepare yourself with humility. You humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God. This is what I do consistently. Because, you see, there is no way any human being could ever offend me to the extent that I have offended my God. There is no way that any of you or anyone who ever will be could offend me to the extent that any of us have offended a holy and a sovereign God, and yet he was willing to die for my sin. He was willing to open up his arms and say, as many as will, let them come. Prepare yourself with humility. Allow God to be sovereign. There are things that will happen in our lives and we may never know the reason why. But we will always know who. Who we belong to. Who holds us and who orders our steps. God is a sovereign God. Another thing that we can do is stay in good relationship with people who love us enough to tell us the truth. Close enough 
so that they can tell us that's not a big deal, you need to get over it. Or that's not a big deal, I don't think that's what they meant, let's go talk to them. But someone who won't take off and run with you with your offense. The fourth thing that we can do is keep the main thing the main thing. We are about the kingdom of God and the Father's business. We need to have our eye on eternity because you see, you cannot run forward with God when you're being hindered with offense and weighted down with what you think people think about you or maybe even what they've said about you or done to you. Psalm 119 verse 165 said, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. So number five would be love the word and long to be conformed into the image and character of Christ. Identify your assumptions and presumptions. We all have them. We need to be aware that we have them and we need to be willing to let them go when reality comes or when God speaks to us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10 says that the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause of stumbling for him. So another way that we step side or sidestep offenses or get over offenses is to love our brother. This has not been an easy message to deliver because I struggle with these things just like you do. Where do you think I get my material from? <laughs> but church, I started out by saying God wants to do something dynamic through us in this hour. He wants us to have momentum and power. And one of the things that will hinder us are these strongholds of offense. I want to just ask you this morning, if you have been offended if there's the symptom of offense at work in your life, I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm just going to ask you to stand with me and let us surrender this to Jesus so that he can empower us to tear down these strongholds so that we're not building up walls that are costing us the very thing that we're trying to protect. Thank you, Jesus. Bless your name, Lord God. What a mighty God you are. The first thing that we say to you this morning is, Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us, Lord God. We always ask you to do for us those things which we cannot do for ourselves. We're asking you to open our eyes and let us see places where the stronghold of offense has taken root. We ask you, my Father, to deal with personal opinion, personal advantage, and personal convenience and comfort. Help us to be a people sold out totally and completely to you. Help us to be that people, Lord God, that runs after you with nothing hindering. Father, do not let us be like the rich young ruler who turns away and loses and misses out on that which you have for him. Let us be as Naaman. Let us be as a Syrophoenician woman. Father, let us be that people that's willing to work through offenses and find that you are worth more than anything we can hang on to. Would you tear down the walls, Lord God, that we've built? Would you let us truly be free? You are a chain-breaking God, and we know that you're a fence-breaking God too. And that's what we ask you to do for us in Jesus' name.
Amen.